0: nacho well good morning it's really good to see you I hope you had a good Christmas hope yours was as good as ours Uh, we were in uh, Salt Lake City for a while Bryce Canyon and then we went to uh, up to Seattle with my family tried to put pictures on Facebook for those of you that are into that so you could see where we were and, um, but we just had a really sweet time with our families in different parts of the country. So it's fun to be gone, and it's uh, also really good to be back. It's except for the Christmas Eve service. I feel like I haven't gone to church in a really long time. So it's good to see you. Now, just uh, I need to tell you that I'm actually going to be gone next week. Also, normally when I'm gone, it's for our pastor training ministry, and that's what'll be happening uh, this next Sunday is uh, I'll be in Amman and Dubai looking at opportunities there to open up our pastor training ministry. So, um, so I will be also gone next week, but I'm not going to be at a national park or something like that. <laughs> but I'll still put fi- pictures on Facebook if you want to see them. But we are back to our series through uh, the book of Exodus. Pastor Mike launched us off again last week. We've been in Exodus now for about a year. Uh, we took a break during Christmas And we are in chapter 24 of Exodus today. I'd like to draw your attention there. Please join me there. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11 of Exodus chapter 24. Uh, As you're turning there, one of the most important questions that any person can ask is, how do I have a relationship with God? And is that even possible? And to answer that question, we turn to Exodus 24. If you remember way back in November, we paused this Exodus series And at that time, we were studying a section in the middle of the book of Exodus called the book of the covenant. It's a series of a few chapters in the middle of the book of Exodus, and it begins, if you look at verse 20, or chapter 20, actually, if you're there in Exodus, you look at chapter 20, that's the beginning of the book of the covenant, and it starts with what? What do you see there at the beginning of chapter 20? The Ten Commandments, right? It starts with the Ten Commandments, and then after the Ten Commandments, there are a series of other laws Uh, That make up what is called the book of the covenant and those laws relate to things like slavery lending money rape property law and restitution and so on and you remember as we went through that together and that's called the book of the covenant now at the end of the book of the covenant uh, we have here chapter 24. This is basically what happened after the people received the Book of the Covenant and heard the Book of the Covenant. And then they said, yeah, okay, we agree with that. We agree with God's law. And then there was a ratification ceremony that happens here in chapter 24 where they sat down and they had a meal in God's presence. And this represented uh, everybody's agreement to the terms that are laid out in the Book of the Covenant. And so that's where we are this morning. God has explained the law. The people have agreed to follow the law. And this mutual agreement, this mutual, co- mutual covenant is affirmed with a meal. And so this passage is going to tell us a lot about how to have a relationship with God. This is not the only place in the Bible where this is answered, but I do think it's one of the best places because it is one of the first places we see this begin to happen as God has brought his people out of Egypt and he lays down a few themes here that are referred back to in many other places in the Bible. So this morning... We are going to look at chapter 24, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read a few sentences at a time, make some comments to make sure that we understand what the text says, and then we'll draw out some implications. Let's begin with verse 1 of Exodus 24. I'm going to read the first three verses. Then he, God, said to Moses, "'Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar.'" Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So this passage begins with an invitation, an invitation to fellowship with God. And the invitation is given to Moses, and then it's given to Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, so that represents the priestly line, and then 70 elders, this is the first time we've seen these guys, we don't know where they came from, uh, but apparently the original Readers of this text understood, well, yeah, of course, the 70 elders. And so whoever these people are and however they were appointed, there's a group of about 74, 75, maybe 76 or so people that have been invited to this meal at the mountain. And once they get there, Moses is going to go a little bit further. So out of the millions of, of Israelites... These few had special access to God as representatives, representatives of the people to God and representatives of God to the people coming back down the mountain and saying, here's what we experienced. Now, what this shows us here, this special invitation and, and all of the different arrangements that have to be made in order for this meal to happen, what this shows us is that God is very holy. And you know, the word holy means set apart, not common, Not ordinary, but set apart and also without sin. Both of those ideas come out of the word holy. Set apart, not ordinary, not common. And so God is obviously unbelievably and ultimately not common or ordinary. And God is also totally pure and without sin. And God is extremely holy. He cannot be approached unless, first of all, he gives an invitation and he then has to be approached on his terms. Uh, And here the terms are from afar. These guys had to worship God from afar. Moses got to go a little bit further, but as we see in the later text when Moses meets with God, uh, there's still a little bit of a separation here because God is so holy and God is so massive and majestic uh, that he cannot fully reveal himself even to Moses. Uh, What this passage also shows us is that God has to be approached via a mediator. Mediation, Moses and these elders are standing between God at the top of this mountain and the people who have been told that you can't come onto this mountain. In fact, if you cross certain boundary stones, if even a goat crosses one of these boundary stones, then you will die because of, God, because of God's holiness. He is so great uh, that there has to be a mediator here standing in between the people and God. Now, later in the Bible, Jesus made it possible for all people, To have very close contact with God, not worshiping any longer from afar, but very close contact with God to the point that his presence is actually inside us. The dividing curtain of the Holy of Holies was actually torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And that Holy of Holies represents that very special place that only the high priest could go into once a year. All of that was ripped so that all people now have access to God's holiness. Uh, We also have an invitation to come up to the Lord. We also have a mediator, but not Moses, not these elders or anything like that, but Christ himself, who was better than Moses in the sense that Jesus actually brings us with him. So here Moses leaves millions of people. He's got a few elders around him, and they go up, and then even they are left behind, and Moses goes further, and even he doesn't have this full revelation. Jesus functions as a better mediator because he brings us right with him to the top of the mountain. He brings us right with him into the Holy of Holies so that we can interact with God, not from afar, but on very intimate terms. Now, that may not sound like that big of a deal it 's early in the worship service. Maybe your heart hasn 't totally gotten into it yet, and everything that I 've just said, you might be thinking, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we know that Jesus makes it possible for us to interact with God. But let me emphasize here I think I think uh, God is so outrageously holy. it really is something uh, that happened at the crucifixion, and after that, the resurrection that Jesus makes it possible for us to walk right into the holy presence of God without falling on our face, without, without dying, without being burnt by his holiness. I think American evangelicalism tends to overemphasize the accessibility of God, overemphasizing this idea that, of, of course, we have access to God. Now, I agree that we have access to God, but not because the cross somehow neutered God. Not because he was somehow made less holy. God is just as holy as he ever was. We can approach him because Jesus already died. And nobody needs to die twice for a sin. So, of course, I am a sinner. But I can go right into God's presence without being burnt or consumed by his holiness, by his great holiness. Because the death of Jesus Christ is credited to my account. That's an incredible thing. We walk next to Jesus, right up to God the Father, and we say, look, I'm a sinner. In fact, I'm the biggest sinner that I've ever known because I know myself better than anyone else. And so I am the biggest sinner that I've ever known. And I'm making sure, like, he, this guy who brought me here, he died for that sin too, right? So we're okay. And God says, yes, this is how the system works Uh, that Jesus Christ as a mediator is able to bring me right into the Holy of Holies and interact with God. So Moses was a good mediator, but Jesus is better. Jesus is the ultimate mediator. Jesus actually fulfills everything that Moses is showing us in shadow terms. So we're already beginning to see some of the key elements to our question this morning. Our question is, how do I have a relationship with God? What is God like? How do I approach God? And the answer here is that it is by God's invitation and he has this dangerous holiness that requires paying attention to his terms and it requires a mediator. And Jesus is that sufficient mediator for having very close contact with our holy God. Now in the next few verses, we're going to see more important keys to interacting with God. Let's begin in verse 3. I'm going to go all the way through 8. So this will be our longest section here this morning. Moses is going to do a bunch of different things here. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So what is being referred to there is almost certainly the book of the covenant. Beginning in, verse, uh, beginning in chapter 20 and going through 23, uh, Moses basically reads this all off to the people. Okay, so again, verse three, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice. And they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. All right? That's what we're referring to there, beginning in chapter 20, going through 23. He took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So what's probably happening here, and we see this many times in Scripture, especially very, very ancient writings like this, is a little bit of repetition. The author has already told us this. Um, and so what's happening now is a little bit of elaboration that Moses told all the people these things and they responded it probably didn't happen twice, just probably happened in such an important way that the author wants to make it clear. Now, here's exactly how that happened. OK, then he take the book of the covenant, verse seven, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, that might seem like kind of a weird thing, but we begin to see that throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system, that there's a sprinkling that happens after an atonement death has occurred. So the animal died making atonement. And the symbolism of that, the substitutionary death, Moses takes some of that blood and he symbolically sprinkles it on the people, basically showing that, look, the atonement worked and you're covered by it. And even New Testament authors refer back to that, talking about how our hearts have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. So there's a few important things here in the verses that we just read, 3 through 8. These themes run all through the Bible. This isn't just an Exodus 24 thing. It's a Bible thing. And many other places in the Bible look back to Exodus 24 for these things. First of all, Moses is building an altar. He's building an altar right at the beginning of this relationship with his people. He's just brought them out of the land of Egypt and they've gone through the Red Sea. They're having their Sinai experience here where they've received the book of the covenant. And here they are. It's the the formal beginning of their relationship with God. And Moses builds an altar. And altars are very crucial for understanding how to have a relationship with God. Even today, we don't build physical altars. They're symbolic of other things. But it's still very important for us to understand how an altar works. So what do you do on an altar? <laughs> what is an altar for? It's, for? it's for making offerings, right? And we're not putting you know, iPods or TVs or things like that on an altar. Things are dying on this altar, It it looks like a very, very large barbecue pit, you know, with, with these iron things that go across and animals are put on there and offered up to God. These are offerings. These are blood sacrifices. And so an altar refers to blood sacrifice. Okay, and that's why this is important because sin demands blood. Sin demands death. And we see that right from the very beginning of the Bible where God said to Adam and Eve, look, if you eat. From this tree, you will die. And so any time someone sins, any kind of sin, it cries out for the punishment of death. And if we want to approach this holy God without dying, someone still has to die. There still has to be blood. So God created a system of substitutionary death. He loved these people that are surrounding this mountain. And they haven't figured out how to live yet. And they're all kind of disheveled and everything and wondering what is this all going to be. But God loves them. And he wants to put his tent right in the middle of all their tents. And we're going to learn about that tent here in the next few weeks because we're just about to start some of the, the tabernacle instructions here. So God basically wants to pitch his tent right in the middle of everybody else's tent. But in order for this to happen, for God to dwell with a whole bunch of sinners, there has to be death. OK, if God's going to come and live in the midst of them, if he shows up, everyone's all of a sudden going to die because of his great holiness that burns against sin. So there's has so what he did because he loves them is he set up a system of atonement. He set up a substitutionary pro- death process where an animal dies in the place of a human. And we call this penal substitutionary atonement, penal referring to a justice system. Sin has to be punished substitutionary referring to the fact that one dies in another's place and atonement atonement is a very important Bible word meaning the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of relationship that comes after this substitutionary death penal substitutionary atonement and that's what an altar represents now you'll notice something else here this sprinkling that I mentioned in verse 8 Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That sprinkling shows us that the atonement worked, that this substitutionary death, that this animal sacrifice, that the blood of that worked in terms of turning away God's wrath toward sin. And so the sprinkling represents that it worked and you're covered by that. That animal was killed as a substitute and then its blood was sprinkled on the one or on the group That was covered by that substitutionary death. So an altar is very important. And of course the symbolism of the altar. Was fulfilled at the cross. When Jesus Christ as the ultimate substitute. Died in the place of sinners. Now another important thing happens. In these verses. We'll tie some of this together in a few minutes. Another important thing happened in that section. That we read a few minutes ago. And that's that Moses reads the word. And the author probably Moses. Is so. Uh, excited about making sure we understand that that he did this, that he says that he did it twice, that he read the word. He read the book of the covenant. Verse 3, you see, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now, you'll see a similar pattern in many places in the Bible, this combination of an altar and reading the word, an altar and reading the word. And this is how we begin our worship services. Have you thought about that? This is how we begin our worship services. Our very first songs are an invitation to worship a holy God. This morning we sang, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. It's a, it's a reminder that God is holy. And this is followed by a reminder of the gospel. We call it the confession and the forgiveness, this beginning of our service where we go through this elementary, beginning, foundational reminder of the altar the cross the substitutionary death of jesus christ it's how we begin our services and that of course is followed with the reading and preaching of god's word uh, so this basic pattern of worship that is introduced here in exodus has been repeated on purpose by churches all over the world for thousands of years these are the basics for having a relationship with God. We are mindful of his holiness. We hear an invitation to come into his presence. We engage with an altar blood sacrifice as New Testament believers. That has to do with cross, gospel, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And we hear the word of God read and explained. These are the basics of interacting with God. That's not the conclusion of the passage. It doesn't end there. The word calls for a response. And so the people in Exodus 24 respond really well. You saw that in verse 3. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then in verse 7, they said the same thing. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, that was a short-lived commitment, and we'll see that in a few chapters here with the golden calf debacle. But it is still the right response to the, to the hearing of God's word. To the, when we hear God's word and we engage with this reminder of the altar, uh, The right response is to say, yes, I agree with that. I believe in that. I will do that. And that is how to respond. And so watch what happens. We've had this process here. And watch what happens now. And remember our question. Our question here this morning is how do we have a relationship with God? And here we're going to see everything come together. There have been a bunch of little themes here. We can wad them together however we want as New Testament believers. But these things are important to us. And watch the result of all of this. Exodus 24, verse 9. Then... Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seven of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, that's an amazing scene. That's an amazing scene. Don't, don't read through that too quickly. It's an amazing scene. It's the climax of everything that has happened in Exodus so far. It is the ratification of the covenant, this meal in God's presence. So what happened here, Moses read the book of the covenant, including the Ten Commandments and everything that followed, read several chapters of what we now have here as a Bible. He read it. He built an altar, sacrificed an animal on it with obvious symbolism of substitutionary death. In other words, you guys deserve to die in this great holy God's presence, but this animal going to die in your place so that we can now have a relationship with him. Moses read the book of the covenant. The people responded with understanding. They were like, okay, okay, I got that. I hear what you're saying about this and that. Okay, okay, I got that. And they're agreeing with it, and they're saying, we'll obey that. And that's when communion with God happened. Now, all of a sudden, they sit down, and they have a meal with God. But there were prerequisites to that meal. This is why wise Christians tell us to read the Bible every day and preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Now, we're not legalistic about it, so if you skip a day here and there, if things, you know, life happens, and so that's fine. This is why wisdom tells us that we need very regular interaction with the Bible and very regular reminders of the gospel. Bible and cross are the foundations of approaching God correctly. Bible and cross. The cross is the New Testament fulfillment of everything that that altar represented. Word and altar, Bible and cross. This is how a relationship with God is possible. And we forget very important things. All of us do. We forget the most important things. And so we read the Bible every day and we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And by doing this, we keep ourselves close to God. This is how we have a relationship with God. So now... After doing that, imagine what these dudes experienced. I just want to read this again here. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw God. Now, what exactly does that mean? Because John 1 tells us that no one has ever seen God, and Moses was only allowed to see God's back at one point, whatever that means. So what exactly did they see? Uh, We're also told that God is spirit, and his substance is spiritual, not physical. And so what does this mean, that they saw God and so you have this here in verse 10 and it's actually a little humorous to look at how different translations handle this because it's very difficult for the writer even to figure out what to write about this and presumably he spent a long time doing it I mean he's just whipping together a, a record of the most important interaction that he's ever had in his life with God but he just can't really fumble around quite right and find the right words and so and so he says there, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heavens for, clear li- for, for clearness. He's basically saying, okay, so we, so, we, so we interacted with God. And the best thing that I can say about what that was like, and he was there and we're having this meal, best that I can say is that under his feet, there was kind of like almost a pavement that was made out of something like sapphire. And that's an amazing Bible verse there. The writer only talks about what he saw under God's feet, and that's it. And this foot vision, the under-the-foot vision, was so overwhelming that it was beyond words. Whatever they saw of God, this visual display of God's glory, uh, what they really came away with was that the stuff under his feet was so glorious that we're not even sure how to totally put it into words. The stuff under his feet. Uh, we're not even talking about his feet. We're talking about, we see this vision of God and the stuff under his feet was so ridiculously amazing I can't even find words for it. And that's the best that I can say of this whole encounter. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing so glorious that it was beyond words. That's an amazing meal. And I think that's what all of us are after our question this morning. How do I interact with God? How do I have a relationship with God? What is God like? Is it even possible to have a relationship with God? Does he want to have a relationship with me? Does he want to have a relationship with you and maybe not me quite as much as you? Like, what are the terms here? How do I interact with God? What is he like? Now, Jesus made all of this vastly less terrifying. But we are still coming to the same holy, awesome God. We are coming by invitation. And the invitation that God sends us is not a job offer. It's an invitation to to have dinner. That's really important, especially those of you with Catholic backgrounds, to understand that this is not a job offer. Come up to the mountain and build me a... Uh, uh, something. <laughs> no, he's like, come on up here. Uh, let's have a meal together. And they're like, okay, should I bring something? Like what? <laughs> it's a meal. So wh- what does a meal represent? And where do you see this in other religions, where the the main god? You're like you've been to Hawaii and you've seen people leave you know beer cans and fruit and stuff for for the gods of the volcano and so on. That's not what we're talking about here. This is God himself saying, hey, come on up and let's eat together. Let's eat a meal in his presence. We see this throughout even the Old Testament where the priests are eating in God's presence. And they had annual feasts where they were supposed to bring some of their best stuff, not just leave it and go, but sit there and eat an awesome meal in God's holy city. With God, they're supposed to eat in God's presence. That represents friendship. So. God is holy, and he's awesome. So to interact with him is not some small thing. He's not not our buddy, right? But this is not a terrifying meal because they're eating together with friends. This is no ordinary friend. This is God. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one who understands what the singularity is at the bottom of a black hole. So this is not just dinner like having any one of us over for dinner. It's interacting with a great holy God who created all things. He created space-time. But he is a friend, and he wants to eat with us. The implication here, I think, is that we need to believe that God loves us and invites us as friends to be with him. I mean, the terms get even more intimate later in Scripture. He makes us children. He adopts us into his family. But don't forget who he is. He is. <laughs> Don't forget who you're eating with. Now, this is important. Think about your own personality. Which which one do you accept more easily? That God is unbelievably holy to the point that you can't quite find words and when most people see him, they fall on their face? Or that God just loves you outrageously and, and loves you so much he's like, no, seriously, come here, come here, come here. Let's eat together. Let's have a meal together. Really? Me? You sure you don't want me to just kind of sit in the back? No, come here. Come here. So which one of those do you have a harder time with? Which one comes more easily? And we can find all kinds of spiritual dysfunctions as we try and figure out which one of these we have a harder time believing. There are lots of meals like this in the Bible. This wasn't a one-time thing. God eating with his people. The Last Supper is probably the most famous, and you also think of Jesus and Peter on the beach. What an awesome interaction that was. Jesus and Peter having breakfast together after he had the most public screw-up of of all time. Well, I guess probably David was worse, so they're probably in heaven going, okay, yours was a little worse, but we both really (laughs) embarrassed ourselves in front of millions of people. And, And Jesus is like, look, come here, let's have a meal together have breakfast. Relax. So many other places where eating a meal comes during a really important gospel moment. Okay, so the meal is not just a friendship meal, but it's a ratification of something that has happened, a substitutionary death that has happened. And so there is a a peace that happens now between us and we can interact with each other. We're at peace because of what happened there that Meal ratifies the gospel, ratifies what happened at the altar and with the sprinkling. Isaiah prophesies about a great meal that's to come for God's people. So listen to this. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. That's a pretty awesome verse. That's Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. Beautiful picture. Of what would happen in revelation 19 the wedding feast of the lamb. This is something that we all can look forward to. Wedding feast of the lamb you've all been to wedding receptions. So the meal ratifies the agreement of the covenant that has just happened and that's basically the symbolism that happens at a wedding feast. You've got two people that get together and they make these very solemn promises together and they make this commitment together and then what happens is everybody around sits down and has a meal because now there's been an agreement made between a couple of people and we can all relax now we can all sit down and we can enjoy the peace that has happened as a result of what has just been solemnly spoken what has just happened in this solemn ceremony and that's exactly what is going to happen for us in fact I I don't know why, but I like imagining what the wedding feast of the lamb is going to be like. Have you thought about that? Like who you're going to sit by and what might be served and and that kind of a thing? Like this is actually going to happen. This is a real thing. It's not just, oh, we're going to a cloud somewhere and maybe we'll have a harp and have to learn it over millions of years. No, what what God is saying is, look, you know, I'm sending my son Jesus to die for your sins. If you repent for your sins and believe in me, let's eat together. And let's start it all off by eating together. And it's going to be this awesome feast. In fact, I'm not going to have anything to drink until that meal because it's just going to be so great to see you and be with you. So who are we going to sit with? And how many people are going to be there? What is that banquet space going to be like? What are they going to serve? How long will it be? And my guess is it's going to feel a little bit like a good wedding reception does. You're going to see someone across the room. I haven't seen them in years. Like, hey, you know, I I didn't think you would be here. And, or the, like, How'd you get in? It's going to be probably pretty cool as we interact with each other, and there's going to be all kinds of people, and we're like, is that Martin Luther over there <laughs> type of thing? Like, who gets to sit by him? And, you know, all kinds, of, you know, C.S. Lewis is going to be there. Dante is going to be there. It's just going to be kind of an amazing experience. We're going to have that experience together. I think... Um, Having studied this and read especially this Isaiah 25 passage, it reminds me um, that these meals we have together after church sometimes are just important. They're important because uh, so much of this is a pattern that we're supposed to follow, and we do it in a small way, and we do it in a shadow-type form. Uh, You know, we're never going to have food that's as good as, uh, as what be served at the wedding feast of the lamb but what happens is this unbelievably holy god that 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 is is like glowing and majestically shooting out flames of fire of holiness and he invites us to be with him and so okay we interact with altar cross type stuff we think okay i can do that because jesus christ died for my sins he's my mediator I can go right into his presence. I figure out exactly what the terms are here in his word. And uh, so I'm interacting with altar and word, and I come into God's presence. I speak things to him. He says things to me. This is what happens in a worship service. Now, for that to end with a meal is pretty cool. Now, we're going to do that today with the Lord's Supper, the most important and satisfying meal that you'll eat this week. or We do it every other week. So most important meal you'll eat in the next couple of weeks. And you think, well, how can a little cracker? and a little cup of juice be satisfying but pastor michael explained that here in a little while when we celebrate this meal together but we're sitting down as a family with Christ as the head we're all a bunch of adopted kids coming around the card table here and we're having a meal together beautiful picture of what will eventually happen in a majestic form in in uh, in our future this is what we have to look forward to and this meal repeated over and over and over throughout Scripture is a way of God saying, look, we're okay, you and me. We're okay. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, because of everything that altar symbolizes, I want to have a relationship with you. So I created a system to make that possible. So we're okay. You repent for your sins? You believe in me? Let's have a meal together. So... God is holy. You remember Isaiah 6. There's one angel by God's throne who says to another angel at God's throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. It's just the angel at God's throne. It's not even God talking. But the angel at God's throne has such a booming, awesome voice that the foundations shake. That's the God who has invited us into a relationship, and that would be scary, and that would be impossible, except that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that altar represented. And all of our hearts have been sprinkled by the blood of his substitute death on the cross. When we repent for our sins and put our trust in him, we come to him and say, look, I am the least deserving people I can, a deserving person I can ever imagine, but I pray that the death of Jesus would cover all of my sins, And I commit my life to you and whatever you want to do with me, I'll do. And that works. That kind of a prayer works. It works. It was God's idea. He doesn't create something that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. It works. So because of what we read in this word and because of what happened on the cross, we can have a relationship with God. So our response to that is agreement and yes and where do I sign and That sounds great. It's a response of, yes, I'll do that, which is what we're going to do when we sing a few songs here together in a few minutes. We're responding to the preaching of the word by saying or singing or praying certain things back to God. And the result of this is a meal that we're going to celebrate together that ratifies this whole relationship. So let me close here with these words from Revelation And I'm in the wrong chapter, so. Phew, found it. (laughs) I had a a red, you know, the red letter Bible upstairs and I found it really fast, but then all of a sudden I'm in a different Bible and I'm like, oh. Okay, I found it. This is Revelation 3, verses 20 to 22. And you know what I'm going to read, right? Behold, This is Jesus talking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord God, you are holy and that would be scary, except that you are also very gracious and you love us and you've created this whole system of atonement to make it possible for us to interact with you. We praise you for adopting us into your family. God, I pray that the truths that we found here in Exodus 24 would deepen and widen in our hearts so that we would know you better and interact with you in a way that brings you more and more glory. And I pray that Bible and altar, that word and cross, uh, would be constantly at the front of our minds so that we can stay close to you every day. And Lord, as we respond now to your word and the preaching of your word, uh, by saying and singing certain things to you, I pray that you would gather our hearts into truth and that the words that come out of our mouths uh, would be spoken in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.